Okay, it looks like it's just a little bit after 9.30, so let's go ahead and get started. And we're going to take a look at a couple of things today. So today is a little bit of what, what I call protreptics, okay, and how we talk to people um, outside the church, uh, how we relate with people, um, that have different uh, philosophies of life. Uh, but it's also a little preparatory for next Friday when I'm go- going to look at um, the Transfiguration. So, um, and we're going to look at the Transfiguration in terms of prayer and, uh, and the holy life. So, but this, this sort of is, uh, precedes that a little bit. And so we're going to look at Luke 5, verses 17 to 26. So you can open up your Bible there, and we'll start there. And then we're going to move to Acts. In the Bible, there is this theme of turning people towards a new way of of life. You know, you think about the whole biblical story and how God creates Adam and Eve and he creates the world and everything is just as it should be. And then Adam and Eve fall into sin and then everything changes. And what's very interesting is you have two ways and you'll you'll see this a little or hear this a little in the sermon Sunday I'm preaching uh, on a portion of the Sermon on the Plain uh, in Luke. And in the Sermon on the Plain, there's two ways. There's two roads, which we know. Like Psalm 1 talks about it, but it's all over in the Old Testament, the two ways. The way of holiness and the way of wickedness. And the mark to this is that, you know, the devil deceives he's a liar and what he does is he perverts the truth and one of the key things that happens is even if truth continues to exist in different places um, what God's people have seen throughout time is if there's a truth claim but it's not connected to God, then what has happened is robbery, okay? So you don't have to turn to this, but you can jot it down if you want. It's in 2 Timothy. Let me get to it and I'll read it. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 2. And I'll start with verse 1. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, 
but denying its power. Okay, the, so in verse 2, the first one, people will be lovers of self. It's this Greek word, philautoi. And what this actually is understood to be is robbery, lover of self. It, what it means is you take what belongs to God and you claim it for yourself. This is mine. I own it. And so the early Christians understood that whenever someone takes any truth from God and the scriptures and pulls it away from God, it then is robbery. So God has a definition for love. And as we know in our culture today, love has been removed from God and the scriptures and then it's been crafted to be its own thing apart from God and the idea that the Christians had then what and this is where protreptics comes in a way to talk to people without being offensive is to listen for truth that they claim And when you hear truth claims, then you try to help them to see that it is first found with Jesus. It's found in the scriptures. So the idea is to take this concept of lover of self or robbery and reattach truth back to God. And then in that way, God is glorified. And this will come up. I mean, you can, you can jot down Hebrews 11.1. 1, and um, we'll get to that a little bit later. But so protreptics then is always to draw people back to the Lord, the Lord and Savior. And you see a little bit of this in what Jesus does. You also see it in what the apostles teach. And so we're going to look today at Luke 5, 17 to 26, and then hopefully get into Acts 13, 1 to 12. And what is happening is in Luke's gospel, you have all these themes sort of unwrapping and unfolding so you know in Luke 3 you have John the Baptist and then the baptism of Jesus so Jesus begins his journey it's really important you know just like we always see with water stories the people in the Old Testament when they begin a new journey they pass through water and so they it's it's a new beginning and so Jesus follow suit and remember the the questioning in you know jesus approaches the river jordan and john says whoa 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 i you come to be baptized by me i need to be baptized by you and what does jesus say it is fitting in order to fulfill fulfill all righteousness right so what jesus is saying is hey this is what happens 
when we begin holy journeys, we pass through water. And so Jesus doesn't need to be baptized, right? He doesn't need to repent, but it's a beginning. And so we see that in Luke chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, right after his baptism, he enters the desert and there's temptation. And so you see the spiritual battle, the spiritual battle between good and evil, the spiritual battle between keeping the teachings of the Lord with the Lord versus divorcing those teachings from the Lord and them existing on their own right. And you see this right away in the, the uh, temptation of Jesus in the desert because Jesus quotes scripture in response to the, to the devil and then what does the devil do? He twists it and he starts quoting scripture but out of context. And so then that whole thing really starts to open up. And so what it is, is in a way, I mean, it's the eschatological battle of good over evil and how Jesus is going to be victorious over the devil and all evil. But that, that temptation in the desert is a battle over the word of God and the truth, and the glory of God. That's the big thing. So right away that's happening, and then Jesus heals a man with a demon right after, uh, well, he, he begins to preach right after the temptation. Uh, then he heals a man with a demon. So what you see with Jesus in the opening chapters of Luke is There are two things. There's the things that Jesus teaches and then the things that Jesus does. So the question for you then is, why does Jesus do miracles? Why does he do miracles? I mean, I'm sure there's more than one answer, but what's behind the miracles the opportunity for people to see who he is, that he is God, and then for them to hear him teach and so that they can hear about his journey to the cross and that he is the savior of the nations. And so all that's kind of rolling around and this has an impression then on the church. So... Part of my point to this today is to get you to see and reflect on the fact that the church always does or should do what Jesus does. So you see examples of how to live and then you hear teaching. And so as I said last week, with protreptics, there's the word or the speech, the teaching. There is the um, emotional aspect or the um, persuading, you know, you're persuading through, you're trying to get people to see 
in order to persuade, but then the character of the speaker is also really important. So logos, pathos, and then athos. You see, this is protreptics, to have these three things at work. And Jesus exhibits all three. He has the word, but he is also the word, right? The word made flesh. He appeals to what people know. So this is not just empty emotionalism. Like, I always try to be careful about this because in some Christian circles, the appeal is just empty emotionalism just to get people to kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, amen. But that's not this. Pathos is to to speak in the terms that the person would understand, that they could relate to, and then to move them in such a way that they reflect on the things of God. So it's it's an emotion, but with substance. And then Jesus is also the character, you know, his character exhibits Right, So Jesus is a protreptic. He is the one who turns people towards a higher art of living. And that's really important. It's not just about empirical data. And so when we talk to people, remember that. It's not just about, I need to give these people the right information and then I've done my job. It's, it's about leading them to see that there is a higher way to live. And so we'll, we'll get into this. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. And I know you know this well. Jesus heals a paralytic. On one of those days, as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, And we're filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, when you listen to this, when I I listen to this now, I just think in these terms all the time, like, 
there's this protreptic going on. There's this appeal. Because when it says that the, the Pharisees are arguing in their hearts, the Greek word is dialogue. So there's like this philosophical dialogue going on within their hearts and between one another. But when we look at this text, I have often said there are two miracles at work in this text. What are they? He knew what was in their heart. Yeah, but think about the other man, the, the paralytic. I mean, that in and of itself is a miracle that he knows what's in their hearts. That's true. I wasn't thinking about that one. But there's two big ones. Okay, so the healing. Now, what moves people? I mean, I could, you know, I could go out on the street and tell people, hey, your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace all day long. But if I take a, somebody that's, you know, physically, you know, paralyzed and I make them walk, everybody will wake up to that, right? So there's really two miracles at work. One is he forgives the man his sins. The other one is he heals him. The world would say that the greater miracle would be the physical healing. We would say the greater miracle is the forgiveness of sins, right? When we look at this text, the paralyzed man is lowered through the roof right in front of Jesus. Now, that's a bold move. Have you ever thought about that? To just, you know, interrupt, you know, I'm just going to interrupt the, you know, this holy teacher and I'm going to come right down. And I mean, you know, if you're a type B introvert, you would never do that, right? (laughs) That would horrify you, right? Uh, But they lower him right in front of Jesus. But initially, there's no indication that he wants to be healed. He just wants to hear, right? I mean, I'm sure there's an element like, I've heard this guy does things, so maybe I could see what's going on, and who knows, maybe it'll hit me a little bit. But initially, he just wants to hear him. And so Jesus stops and looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that really raises the roof. Now, if you think about it in terms of these things, you have Jesus who is the the ethos of holiness, but his speech and his word is the teaching that he's giving in the house, but then it comes out as forgiveness. So, for the text, for Luke, the content of this story is that the ethos of the Savior is to forgive, but the crowd doesn't buy it. And so what does he do? But he addresses their passions, and he addresses their passions by the physical healing. And then they are awake. So that's what's going on in this text. And throughout the scriptures in different places, uh, there is this sense of demonstration. So when we think of faith, I'll give it here in Greek. 
So pistis means faith, okay? What is faith or what was faith to the ancients? Faith was proof. Uh, it, is, it is used as proof in, in early Christian writings. It was used even by Greek philosophers as proof. So this is important because what people in our culture today tend to think about faith as kind of this, this is the way I describe it, maybe one of you can describe it a little differently, but faith in our culture today is sort of like this thing that has no grounding and it's just sort of all over the place and people talk about faith and I, you know, just got to have faith. Oh, you know, Donna, you just got to have faith. You know, just got to have faith. You know, and you stop and you go, what is that? I mean, that's what I did as an early Christian. When the Christians were talking about faith, I'm like, what is faith? And how do I actually have faith? And I'm, ah, I'm kind of struggling with faith. And man, faith is hard. You ever felt this? Like, faith is hard. How do I... How, do I, how does this faith work? Well, faith is kind of like the object, right? It receives, right? So you need something outside in order to give sense to faith. Does that make sense? So I could, I could stand in a cornfield forever and look around and say, I got to have faith, I got to have faith, I got to have faith. But what's... What, what is it that puts this, where's the substance that is put into faith for me to grab a hold of? Well, for us, it's Jesus and all that he says and all that he does. And so he pours into us the substance of his mercy and faith is created based on what Jesus is and does. And so faith is the evidence of what is given, of what is seen, and what is heard. And so faith, I, I do like the idea of faith being proof. It's what you hear in the scriptures, it's what you see on the altar. You know, it's not a disembodied, disconnected thing. And would you agree with me that, like, in, just in our culture, faith has this disembodied kind of existence? Well, well yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I think of, um, like, I had a friend who was not a believer, and she was a really introspective, thoughtful person. But for her, faith was really important. And she, she described it as, she was really into like the power of positive thinking, mm -hmm. and that for her that was faith, and it was there was no there was nothing she was placing that on, but it was almost like it, it got to the point where she would be like, okay, we have bad finances, I am just going to believe that this is all going to be okay, mm -hmm. and, and and it was almost like just that belief, that faith that she had was the thing that turned everything good in her life is what she believed. So as long as she believed it hard enough and well enough and she was thoroughly immersed in that way of thinking, then all those things would happen and everything would turn out all right. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But I think it's, but I think like, so then that part of culture, I feel like we actually, a lot of times as Christians, it's tempting, it's tempting just to like tap God onto that on the side. It's like, well, we have faith, and it happens to be in God, you know, but because we believe that all these good things will happen. Exactly. And this is, this is like a soft robbery, right? Like no one would intend to, 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 to rob God of the concept of faith, but in a way it is like faith almost becomes more important than God himself, right? And, and then faith, we own it and we control it, right? So see, the whole idea of faith is... Jesus is the substance and the basis and the foundation. And then he pours all of his cross and his resurrection and everything and his teachings into it. And our eyes are opened. Faith takes hold of what is Christ's. You see the difference? It's very subtle. I think of faith as a gift from God based on his gift concrete gifts. That's good. And these uh, men that brought the paralytic, um, it was, that was a miracle. I mean, that they had faith because Jesus said, he said, he said to all of them, right? Exactly. I think that's a good point. It wasn't just a paralytic, but it was the guys that were helping him down, right? It moved them. It moved them. Exactly. That's exactly, that's very good. Well put. Well put, Donna. Yeah, and so when you look at this text, this is what you see. You see a room, a house filled with people that are caught in between their own inner dialogues of the heart and the mind and their philosophies and their teachings that are swirling about. Jesus is right in the middle of it and he forgives and he heals. And then everything starts to shift and in verse and so a couple points here and this gets to the notion of catechesis in the church so jesus was teaching and the word is didache or didasco which is a technical word for uh, catechetical teaching and then on the second page and so what, what you see here, like in verse 21, you see this is the protreptic method that Jesus forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. And they know this. Isaiah 43, 25 and Isaiah 55, verse 7, both state that. So they're thinking about the Old Testament. They're, they're thinking about God's word in that Isaiah passage. God says, I forgive sins. So they have, they have an existential crisis before their eyes. And so then in verses 23 and 24, but that you may know, so why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And uh, verse 24, hmm, yeah, authority. 
And you have language of the resurrection too, which is important. And so, as I said, faith, faith in Greek is sometimes translated as proof. All right, now go to Hebrews 11 verse 1 and take a look at this verse in light of this concept of faith. Because this is morning. This is the description, this is the definition of faith that the author of Hebrews supplies. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Let me get the Greek open real quick. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So it says it a little stronger in the Greek. I mean, it really, faith is the, the foundation of things that are hoped for. Um, it stands over. And so the idea is faith is the recipient of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the things demonstrated. And in this case, the things demonstrated by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 25, back in Luke, is resurrection language. And you see, the, so what you also see here in the conduct or the character of Jesus is how he treats uh, the, paralyzed, the paralyzed man. He is merciful to the destitute and forsaken. So this lends itself back to the speech, his teaching. He is one who is merciful. And so they see in his mercy, they also hear, they see the character of, of his words and his teaching. And through it, God is glorified. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 13. So how does the church respond? And this to me is fascinating so the church does what Jesus teaches. The church does what Jesus says. But the church also follows suit. Christ is the example. So he's the Savior, but he also he begins the pattern and he shows us the pattern of how to live. And... So we see in Luke's gospel, Jesus would go into the temple or he'd go into the synagogue and he would teach. And then invariably, as he would teach, his teaching would pull out a demon from the crowd, right? So the demon would want to stay hidden. But with Jesus, they can never stay hidden. And so the demon would cry out, and then Jesus would cast the demon out. Well, in a similar way, in Acts chapter 13, we see what the church does then in terms of prayer, but then also in teaching. And in Acts 13, it's similar. Not exactly the same, but it's similar. So you see the pattern. So 
Let's read Acts 13 and we'll start at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So what's interesting here at the beginning is there's prophets and teachers. And so the word for teacher is the same word that's used for Jesus teaching in that Luke passage, didache or didasco. So they are, they are catechists. They teach the faith. So they follow suit with Jesus. And then it lists some of these people. In verse 2, while they were worshiping, the word in Greek is liturgy. So they're in the midst of liturgy. So how did they learn to do this? Well, you had the Jewish temple and you had the Jewish synagogue. Jesus was doing it. They do it. And there's prayer and word of God then, right? And teaching. And then, so the Holy Spirit says in the midst of liturgy, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So there's fasting, there's praying, laying on of hands, and then they were sent out. Then in verse four, this is where it gets interesting. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, so here's the pattern. And this, this gets to the character of, of everything that happens. So the character of, the, of Barnabas and Saul is the ethos, the ethos. And the character is determined by the Holy Spirit. And they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So they do what Jesus did. And they had John, so this is Mark, John Mark. They had Mark to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So here you go. The stage is being set. There's two teachings, the two ways. There's the way of life, and there's the way of death. Psalm 1, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. There's the way of life and there's the way of death. The way of life is being led by the Holy Spirit. But then listen how it's described with the magician. He was with the proconsul, so the magician was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And in Greek, uh, this word in verse 7 for intelligence is uh, sinato, and so he's, he's a man of learning. 
which means he knows stuff. Um, it's, he's Roman, and so it's, it's quite possible. The fact that he's described as a man of intelligence means that he has some philosophical, perhaps some Greek philosophical training, okay? So what's going on, if you just kind of look at the picture, you have God's apostles sent out by the Holy Spirit. You have the magician. And in the middle, you have a Roman proconsul who has Greek philosophical background. This is the context. And he, so he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So he wants to hear. He wants to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. Now, this, this is where, when you look at the Greek, there's just so much going on. So this word <clears throat> is similar to the word protreptics. But, so protreptics means to turn someone towards a teaching but what the magician is doing is trying to pull across the teaching. He's trying to pull Sergius Paulus away from the teaching of the Lord. So it's like directional. So yeah, Elymas the magician opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here's the word faith in here. So he's trying to dissuade Sergius Paulus. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now remember all these times when I've talked about the straight path and the straight road versus the crooked road. And remember I, I mentioned before that, you know, there's like in Isaiah where Isaiah says, in that day, the day of the Lord's coming, the valleys will be raised up and the hills will be brought low and a path will be made straight for the Lord. The straight road, the, the way of the Lord is straight. It's flat. Which, by the way, is the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Plain is straight. You know, it's a straight path. But the magician's way is crooked. It's not discernible. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. In this text, notice the comparisons and the contrasts. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, says. So that's the character of Paul. But then what does he do? He describes the magician's character. So, the, the listener, so it's like there's two, there's two sides. It's, it's almost like a courtroom. 
there's two sides and there's two arguments. And Sergius Paulus, his soul lies in the balance. And so there's the one teaching from Paul, but he appeals, his character is being shown while the character of the magician is being described. And how is he described? Son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. So he's exposing what's true about the magician. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then he says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And this comes up in 1 Samuel 12, 15, in a similar way. And this too, by the way. So it's, it's in some ways a parallel kind of a thing going on in 1 Samuel 12, because Samuel is dealing with the Baals and, and Baal worship. And like in 1 Samuel 12, 10, they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And then it goes on, but then down in uh, verse... 15, he says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So he, the hand of the Lord will be used against you. And then in verse 16, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. What's happening there is Baal was the god of fertility and harvest and therefore the god of thunder and rain. And so those things were robbed of the Lord. That he was the one, God is the one, right? That provides the rain and provides the harvest and the thunder and the wheat and the crops. So the Baals stole those attributes from God and claimed them for Baal. So then the prophet demonstrates the impotence of Baal and shows that the Lord himself is the one who does these things. And so the hand of the Lord is invoked in 1 Samuel for the people to see what happens. So the same thing happens here in Acts chapter 13 when Paul says the hand of the Lord is upon you. It's to demonstrate and to show the Lord's dominion or the Lord's providential hand to overcome evil and so the magician then becomes blind and unable to see the sun mist and darkness falls upon him 
And then he has to go about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So the, the persuasion, so Sergius Paulus is the one that Paul is trying to persuade. So Sergius Paulus is the one whose passion or pathos is being invoked. So he watches this crazy thing happen where all of a sudden he's, the magician is struck blind and then he is forced to be led by the hand, which what that does is it demonstrates the true character of the magician, that he isn't who he claims to be. And his power doesn't come from where it should. And what does it lead to? Verse 12 then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What you see there is faith properly defined as proof or the substance of what occurs. And so Sergius Paulus is persuaded, and this is protreptics, to be persuaded to adopt a new way of living. It leads you somewhere. And so in, Chris, in, in, in Christianity, in, in early Christianity, we are always led then to a certain place. And when we are led to a certain place, we learn. So early Christianity then processes all this from the scriptures. You have word, passion, you know, persuading to a, a new way of living, conduct, the way, of, the way one lives. And it is then brought through to an understanding of the church. And so the church, there is a place, a place where you go, and at that place, one learns, and one learns, which leads to practice, how one practices. And so this word right here, ascasis, is the word we get for asceticism. When we think of asceticism today, we think of the monks, you know, walking around in their habits and praying and taking vows of silence and, you know, don't talk to me, you know, it's quiet time, you know, and all that. But, um, but this, this has more of a, a comprehensive perspective of it's the way one lives. And the way one lives is determined by what one learns in the place one goes. And this is very important in early Christianity because like in Alexandria, Egypt, in the 100s and the 200s and then the 300s, there were schools. And the schools, most philosophical schools existed on their own right. So you had a, you know, some philosopher has a school and the philosopher his school is, is based on his reputation as a teacher. 
And if he's a good teacher, he draws people in. But it, you, it would often just be an end unto itself, the school, the philosophical school, and to get more disciples. But with Christianity, the catechetical schools would always lead to the altar, to the sanctuary. And this, by the way, is why, like, I don't know if you've ever seen this in any of our Life Together quotes in the margins, but uh, sometimes you'll see a quote by Irenaeus or Cyprian where they will say, um, there is no salvation outside the church. Or if where the bishop is, there's the church. Well, the idea with that is that the catechetical school must be attached to the church. Because if it exists on its own, then it is likely a heretical sect. Has anybody heard of Arius before? Arius was a heretic, okay, denied the divinity of of Jesus. And Arius had a school in Alexandria, and he was detached from the church. And so he was very popular. He was very tall, very calm, very persuasive. And he had a lot of disciples. And it became a huge problem in the 300s. And what happened was, was at the Council of Nicaea, they had to state what's what. And he was not attached to the church. There wasn't the place, the altar, the sanctuary. So what we find today is when we read these scriptures, we see it speaking of the Savior, creating faith in us by way of the Holy Spirit working through the word, right? It leads us to the sanctuary, to the church, to the altar, And there we find our lives in a similar way as Sergius Paulus. We hear, we're persuaded, and we become a part of the very substance of all that Christ has done and given. And for us then today, when we think about talking to people outside the church, It's good to know, I think, that when we talk to people, we can recognize that there may be grains of truth in what they say. Somebody that has a completely different viewpoint, a completely different religion or philosophy of life. And if we talk with them, we may hear them speak of virtues that are very important to them. And those virtues are often good. Like most people want to be loved, right? Most people want goodness. And so you listen for what they desire and perhaps unbeknownst to them, what they desire has been divorced or robbed of God. And so then what we can do is show them in the scriptures and in the church's sacramental life that Jesus provides the very thing that they seek. 
And for my dissertation, I had to do interviews. Did I tell you about these interviews? So I had to do interviews with young people that were outside the church. And I did protreptics. And I would take a, a text from the Gospels, for example, and I would talk them through it and walk, we'd walk through it and I'd weave their lives in and out of it, right? And then I would ask them some questions. And one of the things that I would, I would ask about, do you seek faith, love, mercy, or hope? And then I would let them talk. So a lot of listening on my part. That's a part of protreptics, to do a lot of listening. And I would listen for what they desired that was good, and then I would point them back to the scriptures and say, you know, at first I would ask the question, how's that working? You know, you want, you want the world to be loving, right? And do you think it's working out pretty well? No, it's terrible. <laughs> the world's going crazy. I mean, and every person that I interviewed said, oh no, the world's terrible. The world's going crazy. Every one of them. And so then I would lead them to Jesus to show them that it is in Jesus that those things can be fulfilled and found. And in every case, except for one interview, the young people desired what they saw in the scriptures. There's one. One was like, nope, I'm out, I don't care. I'm, I'm done, I don't care. That's great, but nope. But all the rest of them desired what they saw in Jesus. And so, you know, what you see in Acts 13 is rather drastic, you know. Um, it's a magician, you know, son of the devil. <laughs> uh, and then the Holy Spirit and Paul. Um, that is meant to show the Old Testament concept of the two ways that you see running throughout. For us... In our world today, it's often not as crisp and clear as that. Uh, and so we recognize that we are on a journey, uh, and we are on a journey to seek the face of Jesus and continually, right, to have our faith built up and to find peace and to find hope in the midst of all the things that are happening to us. So we're on a journey and so we sit with the people that we're talking with and we, we go on that journey together. And if you, can, if you can teach and show and demonstrate through the scriptures, then the Holy Spirit will work through the word and, and much good can come. And I mean, there's so much more to this. Like there's a word for demonstration that's running throughout in the in the New Testament in the Greek, uh, and um, see if there's is there are there any questions? I guess maybe I can stop there. I see I'm out of time. I'm wondering about this piece of art. Yeah. I see one way, but I don't see another. It goes off to the left. You see, like there's a short little road that kind of out ahead that goes off to the left. I got it. Yep. Yeah, the two roads. So next week, uh, I'm going to talk about prayer 
and life. We're going to look at the transfiguration, and we're going to talk about the life of prayer and mountains and the church and life on the plane, okay? So uh, thanks a lot for coming. Let's go ahead and close with the collect for the week. O Lord, graciously hear the prayers of your people that we who justly suffer the consequence of our sin may be mercifully delivered by your goodness to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.